as always, it's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, we have an exciting morning here at Crosswinds with our, our sort of our open house, our annual meeting open house happening out in the lobby. We had nearly seven kids, I think, uh, dedicated last service. Uh, and so that was exciting. And uh, we're starting a new series. Uh, I, I don't know when you grew up, but when I was in my teen years, uh, names like uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and, and Van Damme were like the box office hits. Anyone remember them? Okay, all five of us? Okay. Uh, <laughs> And they were the individuals who like, we always sort of aspired to. And so I, don't, I guess that's why uh, when I look at the Old Testament, I, I gravitated, and, and probably still do, uh, to stories like Samson, you know, and Gideon, and, and certainly David. And, and as we look, for instance, at David, D- David's mentioned more times in Scripture than anyone other than God himself. And so my guess is, if he's mentioned that much, there's a reason. Uh, God wants us to know and learn some things from David. And so and when we think of David, uh, many times we go to one account in his life, uh, the, the epic battle between David and Goliath. And, and it's a great account, and we'll be looking at that in this series, but, but there's so much more. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be mentored through God's word, and in a way, mentored through David uh, in his life story, uh, looking at this ancient king. This man who was declared a man after God's own heart, who had highs and lows, just like all of us. And so when, when we look at being mentored, you know, through the word and mentored through people of scripture, one of the intrinsic evidences of, a, of God's word being God's word is the fact that it shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so sometimes when, we, when we're mentored by people through scripture, it's like, how many of us would love to be able to mentor someone and say, just do everything I did and you'll be okay? It's just not the way it always works, right? You say, here's some things I learned that are positive, but here's some things I did that were wrong. Don't do what I did, right? And when we look at David, there's some things that we go, man, we, we, we want to look at that and we want to emanate that in our life. And there's other things we definitely do not want to do. And yet mentored all the same. David was sort of a diamond in the rough. This, many of you are familiar with that phrase, I'm sure, diamond in the rough. It's a, it, it can be used to describe a person who has great potential, yet can't be seen from the surface. And it comes, this idiom comes from an actual diamond in the rough, a diamond that hasn't been cut and hasn't been polished. And many times these rough diamonds look like just other rocks. That's where that term comes from. And so there's these precious gems that you just sort of can look right over. And, and David was a sort of diamond in the rough. His rise from, from shepherd to king is, is atypical. In fact, uh, the whole anointing, how he's anointed as king is, is quite unique. Let's begin, though, by looking at David as a shepherd boy. There's an account that speaks to sort of that diamond in the rough of who he was, and he shares it with King Saul later in 1 Samuel 17. He tells a story of a couple of times, but one in particular where he says that a lion took one of the sheep that he was caring for, this lamb. And David said, I went after that lion. Picture this. He said, I grabbed it by the beard, and I took the lamb out of its mouth, and then I killed it. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to see that. Like, I want to see that. Like, I don't know how heaven works, but I actually, if I could download that account, I would do it right now. David grabbing the lion by the beard and and taking this lamb out of its mouth. But what we ought to not miss is the fact that David saw this one lost lamb, and it was an occasion of, of David's bravery. Arguably, most shepherds would have looked at this situation and thought, I'm not going to give my life for one lamb. But David's sort of given us a picture of what Christ will do for us salvifically, uh, steps out 
And he gives us all for this lamb because he loves the lamb and because he wants to be faithful to his father who's trusted him with this amazing responsibility of caring for the sheep. And this event really demonstrates that although many won't actually see David for who he is for some time, he was a diamond in the rough. In fact, we discover that David was faithful in small things and as a result later was given greater responsibilities to perform. And many of us tire of the small things in life. Isn't that true? Like we just want to arrive. I think of some of those box office heroes. Everyone wanted to be Rambo. You guys know who Rambo was? Everyone wanted to be Rambo, but no one wanted to get shot. Right? But yet David really teaches us this, this amazing principle that if you're faithful in small things, then later you'll be given bigger responsibility. That certainly was true in David's life. So let's get back to David's story. So King Saul, the first king of Israel, has, has really discredited himself before God. God's rejected him as king. And Samuel's about to go and anoint a new king. And this is what you read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so an interesting thing happens when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem. Drop down to verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, troubled, trembling, and said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peacefully, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to, with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass before him, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made, get in the picture, seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now this is a short yet packed account with much that we could look at. First of all, just a reaction of the elders. You can picture the elders, uh, the, the, the normal circuit for this prophet apparently was in Bethlehem. So when he shows up, those in Bethlehem sort of look at the prophet and want to know if troubles are coming their way. You know, is he bringing bad news or is he bad news? Because they had all known in the nation this conflict between the prophet Samuel and the king Saul. And they think, is he going to bring trouble our way? So they ask him, are you coming peacefully? And he says, yeah, peacefully I'm coming. I'm coming to, to give a sacrifice. And he says, call all the the sons of Jesse too. So he anoints Jesse's family in his house. Now notice, he, it says he anoints Jesse's sons, but we find out later one's not there. 
that when Samuel said to Jesse, hey, bring all your boys over. I need to see all of them. Uh, Jesse goes, well, certainly it's the older ones. It's not the youngest, which I get. I was the firstborn in my house. Any firstborns out there? I get what he's looking at. And this is really what's happening. Jesse's probably thinking of all my sons, whatever, whoever he's going to anoint as king has to be the oldest. That's the way it usually works. And of course, Samuel falls into the same trap. He looks at Eliab and he sees that he's taller than the other boys, looks a little kingly, and he, he sort of goes, this has to be the king. Now, interesting enough, he fell into the same trap when he had looked at Saul. The scripture tells us that Saul was a whole shoulder and head higher than everyone else in the kingdom. And, and when Samuel saw him, he thought, now there's a kingly guy. That's the one who God just rejected. But he's judging a book by his cover. And, and it reminded me in, in, in ancient history, uh, Macedonian history to be particular, that there was a particular time when Alexander the Great is meeting this diplomat, this foreign diplomat. And, and when he comes, he's standing next to his friend, Hephaestion. And, and when, when the diplomat sees Alexander the Great, which we're told was sort of short, not very kingly looking, that the, that the diplomat turns to Hephaestion and gives him the honor of being the king which was of great embarrassment and probably feared for his life when he realized the great mistake he had made, but later said, although I had made that mistake, you have to admit Hephaestion did look more kingly than Alexander does. Which proves the point, you can't judge a book by its cover. The prophet must have been troubled because he knew the king was among Jesse's sons. He goes through all of them and then asks the question that anyone would ask, is this all of them? <laughs> Do you not have another? And again, Jesse, when he shows all of his sons, he doesn't really consider David to come. In fact, he says, someone has to take care of the sheep. Why not, sheep, why not his servant? It's David. And when he finds out that there's one more son, the prophet says, go and get him. Now, I don't know exactly where David was in the shepherd's field. I don't know exactly where they were in the old town of Bethlehem, but I've been to Bethlehem. And let me tell you, it wasn't a quick journey. They had to go out and bring him back. There was no horse, certainly no cars, right? And what does he say? We're not sitting down until David gets back. Now, I don't know about you. This is a story for another time, but there's just a lot here. What do you think his brothers are thinking as they're standing there going before? I mean, you can see each of the pecking order going, oh, Eliab's not the king. It's got to be me. Oh, Abinadab's not the king. It's got to be me. Shaman, all the way down. They know there's one more brother. And they're waiting for him to come. And sure enough, David had been overlooked as a diamond in the rough. But when he stands before the prophet, God says, this is the one. And so Samuel anoints David as king. And David is filled with the spirit of God from that point forward. Remember these words, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Catch this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David hadn't been noticed maybe by his father, but God saw David. God saw David. Others might have overlooked him, but God didn't overlook him. No, it's important to, to sort of, as we dig into this series, to realize that although God had rejected Saul, he still allowed the rule for over 20 years. It's a long time. David, in fact, uh, served in the, royal, in the king's royal court. David would go, he would play the harp when the king would be in these periods of deep depression. And, and, and when, when he wasn't serving the king, guess what he did? He would go back and he would shepherd for his father. Other things will happen that we'll look at, but this is how his, his kingly career begins. He's still a shepherd. 
He's not the king. In fact, he's serving the king he will eventually replace. I can't imagine being anointed as king and then going back to shepherd duties. Can you? And yet, as I think about that, isn't that true for all of us as believers? Like we come to Christ. And I can remember when I received Christ as Lord and Savior. And I've been there when many people have received Christ as Lord and Savior. This is life-changing, life-altering, destiny-changing incident. They say yes to Jesus and everything changes. Their position in Christ changes. Their, Their outlook on life is different because of who they are in Christ. And then guess what? They get up and they go home. They go to the same job the next day. The same school. Everything's changed, but nothing's changed. First Peter, describing the church, describing you and I who are in Christ, writes this in First Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We find this, this new life in Christ and, and we find it through the very grace of God. That, and he calls us what? A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Children of the king who proclaim the excellencies of being brought out of this darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, consider it. When we enter into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we, yeah, we become children of the king. Yet again, what do we do? We return to our homes and our workplaces, our schools, the places where we play as everyday missionaries. That God has transformed us in one sense where we're children of the king called to proclaim this wonderful message, but we do it in the same ordinary places we found ourselves, at least at first. And as the youngest son, David, he had very little status, but he was faithful to his father. He was faithful to the Lord. God saw him. He knew his heart. And David was a servant who became a ruler. He was the faithful shepherd of sheep who became the leader of a nation. And, And here's the gospel truth. Here's the gospel truth. There is no limit to what God can do in and through the life of all the diamonds in the rough who walk with him. An individual once told me many years ago, he said, the only limit that you have in your life is the limit you put upon your God. Think about that. The only limit you have in your life is the limit you put upon your God. In other words, if God calls and empowers, you can do it. Years ago, I started picking up saying, me plus God is always a majority. In other words, it doesn't matter what people have said about you. It doesn't matter what you sometimes say about yourself. It's who you are in Christ that makes the difference. If you are sitting here as a child of the king, that's the game changer. If you said yes to Jesus, then he'll take any diamond in the rough and do something brilliant with them. He'll take all of us and use us as just ordinary missionaries in in our ordinary mission places. But amazing things happen when people see Christ in us and they too come and know the Lord. It's not the natural ability that makes all the difference. It's the kingdom ability that makes all the difference. That God's placed within each and every one of us the potential to to be kingdom builders. To bring a piece of heaven to this earth. When I uh, 
met Tim Howard. He was a leader of the church I came to right out of college. And when I met Tim, I was, I was sort of amazed. He had, he had come up with this evangelism strategy that was being used by many people and many churches, actually. And it was being highly effective at the time. It was, it was an evangelism strategy that anyone could use. And so if you weren't an extrovert, if you weren't gifted in evangelism, uh, it was still an effective means. In fact, a lot of introverts found it as a very, po- a very powerful way to share the gospel. And, and I was amazed by what Tim was doing and how God was using him. And so I was super surprised to find out when Pastor John, my lead pastor, shared with me that when he had first met Tim, how shy and awkward he was. And he put a, a special emphasis on the word awkward. He said he was awkward. And later I would share what John had told me with Tim himself. And Tim said, oh yeah, I was, I was shy and I was definitely awkward. At some point after John had met him, he had started coming to the church. He received Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and some months down the road, he had caught... Uh, this word that John was going to a conference and he went to John and he said, can I go to that conference with you? And John, with a smile on his face, said, listen, he would have been the last person in the world I wanted to go to a conference with. He said, but for some reason, I said, yes. He said, obviously God was in the details and Tim went to this conference and God grabbed hold of his heart, gave him a passion for people, those who were far from God, yet so close to his heart. And that led, of course, to the development of this evangelism training and this, this method. And God began transforming this shy and awkward man into an everyday missionary where he lived. That's the man I knew. And I had two of his boys who were in the student ministry. I was a student pastor, and so they were both grew up through the student ministry. And I, I love seeing how God worked in it through Tim's life. There's so much I could share Uh, what God brought him through and how God still uses him today. But I got to share this. Eventually, uh, Tim really started a a different ministry. He still has a passion for for people coming to Christ, but he began to have this passion for people in Christ who were dealing with spiritual battles, who were being oppressed and and, and just felt as if they were downtrodden. And, And so he developed this ministry called Wellsprings of Freedom International, which is a ministry that exists to help the wounded, find freedom in Christ. And, and that ministry is in several churches, hundreds of churches actually in this country and in several other countries. The shy, awkward man who if John were standing here this morning, he would say so easy to overlook. God didn't overlook. Like God saw Tim, saw his heart, knew what his divine destiny was. And all Tim had to say was yes to Jesus and then yes to every step of the journey on the way, right? And God's used him in such amazing ways. In fact, his older boy, Josh, is is a pastor on staff at that same church heritage heritage this day because of what God has done through that family. Many, including John, would have dismissed him, would would have said, the last person in the world I would have thought this would happen to. But I'm reminded, David was overlooked but became a king. Tim was overlooked but became this amazing influencer for God. And why not? When Jesus came, he came sort of as a diamond in the rough persona as well. In fact, the scripture tells us that he sort of allowed his glory to be covered up for a while. He he came, Paul writes it this way and says that he humbled himself by taking upon his divinity, humanity. 
And, and, and we find that the prophet Isaiah writes this about Christ in Isaiah 53 too. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That when Jesus came and took humanity upon himself, he, he came in a way quite different than if I had chosen for myself, I would have. Like if I could choose, if, if I were the creator of the world, I would not have been born in a stable, I would have been born in a palace. How about you? I wouldn't have come to, to really two insignificant individuals in the, in, the, in the nature of the political and religious uh, hierarchy of the kingdom. I would have came as the son of the actual king at the time, right? But Jesus as king of kings humbles himself. And, and, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why people didn't really recognize him as the Messiah. He probably didn't look Messiah-like. He wasn't from the white right family. After all, he was from the same little insignificant town that David was anointed as king in, Bethlehem. As one of the prophets will later say, does anything good come out of Bethlehem? To many, he didn't look as he should look, but he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and still today people overlook Jesus. There are those who will say, well, he's a good teacher, but I like some of the things he said, but not all the things he said. I like what he did here, but maybe not. You don't want to overlook Jesus. And you don't want to overlook the fact that God doesn't overlook you. Think about it. You might have been overlooked. You might have been told things your whole life that gives you a perception of yourself as, that's dismal. You might have done things and even sitting here this morning think there's no way that I could be forgiven of that, no way I could be used, I've disqualified myself. And I want to tell you, you may be a diamond in the rough, but God sees you. You may not know who those around you, whether they see you or not, but let me tell you something, when God sees you, it doesn't matter who else does. And when God looks at you, he sees to your heart, he sees your potential. And when you come to Jesus, you're a child of the King. That's a game changer. You've heard me say this if you've been around here for long. I'm a child of the king. Mess with me. You're not just messing with me. You've got to mess with him. Come on now. God calls me to do something. It's not me looking at my own strength or wisdom and saying, can I accomplish this? The only limit I have is what limits I put on God. Does God have any limits? No. The only thing he can't do is fail. You say, God can't forgive me. God's a God of first, second, 400,000 chances. We don't want to abuse that, but I'm so glad he is. Amen? Doesn't matter where you find yourself this morning. God is saying, come to me. I see you. Let's go into your divine destiny together. Take God's hand. Let him lead you into the destiny he has for you. He sees you. As we pray in just a moment, that journey begins with saying yes to Jesus. Saying yes to Jesus and coming into that family that Peter writes about. A family of royal priests, children of the king. Dearly loved by a God who didn't just tell us he loved us, but showed it on the cross. Who conquered death. Whose very spirit indwells us. I don't know how to say it, but 
But the power of heaven resides inside a believer. Don't tell me what you can't do. If God's calling you, it's already going to happen. It may not be easy. In fact, let me let you know a little secret. Probably ain't going to be easy. But it will be best. I'll close with this thought. Someone years ago told me there's the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Then I read scripture. And I thought, well, humanly speaking, what do we mean by safe? This world isn't safe. No, no, no. The best place to be is in the center of God's will. It may not be safe, but after all, if you read the Narnia uh, collection there, the the, the novels, there's a place in there that that talks about the fact that an individual says, is he safe? Speaking of Aslan, who's a lion who represents God, and he says, no, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. Our God is good and he is powerful. And he will unleash in you kingdom power if you'll just trust him. Let's pray. Father God, I'm overwhelmed by you this morning. I'm overwhelmed by you and I'm overwhelmed by what you want to do in this service. I believe there's people who are sitting here, more than one, Lord God, who who needs to experience that freedom that only you can bring. To break out of the way that they see themselves, perhaps even the way others have spoken into their lives, and to be able to see themselves the way you see that beloved, your beloved child. And God, may this be the first step to freedom. And they right now, in the name of Jesus, claim life in you. Thank you, Father. I pray that there's someone here on campus, maybe online, who's, who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior. That in this moment, Lord God, they would say yes to you. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for being resurrected for our salvation. And Lord, for each of us, may we, may we continue to say yes. Whatever the next step is you're calling us to take with you, may we take it. But oh Lord God, may we not leave this place realizing you see us, you love us, and you want to take us by the hand and lead us into our divine destiny. Do that in our marriages. Do that in our parenting. Do that in the workplace. Do that in our schools. Do that as we go out and have fun in the sun today. That not only would we be changed, but those around us would know the life-changing power of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.